You're fed up with a 9 to 5. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from a traditional career but don't know how? Business Breaks is here to help. Subscribe now and rate and review on your favourite podcast platform. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Business Breaks, where we bring you insightful discussions with top experts and thought leaders in the business world. Today, we're thrilled to have Fabrice El-Gawari joining us. He's a seasoned executive with a strong background in business development, strategy, and general management. Fabrice is currently heading business development at DOT, a rapidly growing mobility company with operations in over 50 cities and 10 countries across Europe. He has a proven record of driving growth and success, having supported the operations at Elder from Series A to Series B rounds and leading the strategy for Uber in the Middle East and Africa. Aside from his professional achievements, Fabrice is also an angel investor and advisor, lending his expertise to early-stage startups. He is a member of both the Uber alumni and ANSAD investing clubs. So whether you're a business owner looking for guidance on finding the balance between hyper and control growth, or just interested in learning from the experiences of a successful executive, this is an episode you won't want to miss. Join us as we delve into Fabrice's fascinating career journey and the insights he's gained along the way. Fabrice, welcome to Business Breaks. I don't do so, Fabrice, nice to have you on the show. Can you tell us about your journey, how you moved from consulting to leading strategy at Uber, and then where you are now leading business development at DOT? Uh, yeah, so, of course, and by the way, thanks for having me here today. Always a pleasure to uh, to share those uh, those experiences. For me, the, the focus has been on uh, transportation from the, from the very start. As a strategy consultant, first advising national railway companies to going for, let's say, shorter distances, right aiming by design, you hop in a cab, in a taxi to travel downtown in a city, and now to the micro mobility world that is, by definition, trips that are either the end of your journey, first or last leg, or simply shorter commutes uh, between one and, uh, and five miles. And we're trying to now these days, crack the problem and provide some efficient solutions for citizens in most uh, cities in Europe. That's brilliant. And it's a real world problem that people are struggling with, especially with the current situation of rising vehicle prices, rising fuel costs, just general inflation. Uh, people still want freedom, but then, and in even in the UK here, there's issues with strikes, so public transport seems to be very much disrupted at the moment. Yes, indeed, and I'm sure we can develop on this later on. Mm. We, we see our solutions as definitely supporting the day-to-day -day when you want to come to visit your family or your friends in the neighbors or around the downtown. During public strikes, it's fascinating form of transportation that is complementing uh, let's say the, those, uh, those, let's say lack of options from a public perspective. So, so we definitely see some peaks of demand uh, during those, uh, those tracks. All in all, we tend to work with, with those public transportation partners hand in hand to provide uh, efficient and complete uh, multimodal journeys to citizens. 
That's brilliant. And um, can you speak to the current state of the transportation industry? Uh, how is your company responding to changing consumer needs and behaviors? Yeah, so we see today, uh, we see a few trends that, uh, that uh, you and me can relate to uh, and ultimately impacting our, uh, our, let's say, daily habits. The first one is like the purchasing power and the rising costs of uh, of diesel and gas as part of our monthly bills. Monthly bills. Yeah. The, the second one is moving away from a standard week where you will spend five days a week in the office to more like hybrid ways of working and thirdly, a stronger focus on uh, sustainability. So how all of this goes together and eventually impact uh, the way we commute. When it comes to uh, when it comes to the rising build in terms of diesel and gas consumption, mm-hmm. what is very clear is that people that individually own diesel or gas cars these days see the cost of inflation directly impacting their uh, their monthly expenses. Mm-hmm. And there's a natural question of let's say the opportunity of of owning an individual car these days when you when you're living in a in a, let's say a, a big city that provides a lot of public ways of transportation. Mm-hmm. So more and more people, more and more people ditching the cars or eventually reducing uh, the usage of of those. Mm-hmm. That's that's one. That's one clear trend that we see, uh, and therefore people moving away to cheaper, uh, cheaper, uh, cheaper commutes. Two on the hybrid way of working. What we see today is that people who will be naturally uh, crossing the city commuting on a regular basis, mm. have now a tendency to go for, let's say, what we call commutes within the neighbors when they work uh, from their place. And that that favors uh, the type of options that provides micromobility, again, with one to five miles on average, uh, where you're simply going for grocery shopping or simply going to the local shop or meeting some, some relatives. And that is by design very different from crossing the city again from uh, west to east, north to north to south, to get to your uh, to your office. When it comes to the last, uh, let's say, uh, structural, uh, <clears throat> when it comes to stronger awareness in sustainability, I think sustainability has been an important focus for us citizens in the past years. But we see definitely a rise up uh, recently uh, after the COVID pandemic, and mm-hmm. people a bit more aware of their carbon footprint. For example, favoring train options compared to flights when it comes to uh, European uh, travels. And and at the same goes with your day-to-day. So when you when you provide an option that is by design more sustainable than your individual car, uh, fuel on green energy, uh, 100% electricity-based, mm-hmm. uh, we see a natural awareness uh, and consideration in that space. Fascinating. And thank you for sharing those insights. So what are some of the You've covered trends. What are some of the biggest challenges facing businesses in the micro mobility space today, and how is your company addressing them? Or, yeah, so so today uh, it's an interesting space in a sense that we have two types of uh, customers. The first set of customers is again you and me, uh, citizens, uh, using those vehicles as as commuting options. And the second one is city halls, uh, cities overall that we consider as prime partners to complement the existing uh, public transport. So what it means 
for us as a business is that when you grow as a company, you need to grow with those two customers, two types of customers in hand. Working closely with the city halls to provide safe and affordable, and I would say also inclusive forms of transportation. Mm. Uh, working on a regular basis to understand uh, if you're covering or not every social category in your city and also being inclusive of pedestrians. And at the same time, uh, fueling your growth through uh, through the number of uh, uh, journeys that you're making and therefore like from yeah. a more classic B2C or marketing standpoint, making sure that you have a strong brand and strong penetration uh, within the city. Uh, so so I would say that's one of the challenges in the industry, making sure that you can uh, progressively expand and grow in cities, within cities, uh, with those two types of customers at the same pace. And secondly, uh, I would say is on the business model itself, making sure that you become much more efficient over time uh, compared to the early years of, uh, of deployment. And so that's the Amazon, uh, let's say, uh, cycle where you progressively optimize your operations day to day to make sure that one, you can create a reliable service. Today, if you order with Amazon, you never question the fact that you're going to be receiving your parcel. Two, affordable, making sure that every efficiency you have in the business, you can transfer it to your end customers to be more and more, uh, let's say, inclusive in terms of uh, willingness to uh, to go for the service. Mm-hmm. And, and, and three, when it comes to inclusion itself, uh, making sure that you can partner with like, the public transport to provide at the end, a combined journey uh, that is, for example, metro plus e-bikes kind of really cover like a A to B destination. Yeah, it's uh, it's critical that you have the public authorities who manage the communities that they serve actually address these real world uh, problems in terms of, as you say, all those variables. So in that, with that in mind, how do you see the future of public transportation evolving and what role will technology play in this evolution? So to that question, I will eventually go back to uh, to a few years ago yes. uh, and how digital already transformed the public transformation, public transportation industry. So, so back then, like, let's say a decade ago, the question was naturally uh, on two fronts. The customer front on how to bring in more customer centricity, and then on the back end on how to maintain a very heavy infrastructure that is a legacy of uh, of the past decades of investment. So on the front end, the question, and we're talking about the rise of smartphones, like mm-hmm. a new form of digital display, let's say. Yeah. So on the front end, the question was very simply, how can you advise better a traveler on commuting from A to B in terms of displaying options, B, uh, providing the ability to eventually book some of those options, for example, trains, booking some trains, trams, and and C, having a clear visibility on the ETA of, uh, of your expected uh, tram, metro, or, uh, or train. And there had been some heavy investments back then. Uh, again, we're talking about the you know, the first smartphones, the first apps, the first consideration around UX. But you will see players coming from different worlds really investing in the UX to kind of promote that experience. And that was already making the difference. Mm-hmm. On the backend side, we're talking about multi-billion investments per year on that, uh, on, that, uh, on that infrastructure. So we're talking about the railways, we're talking about uh, 
the uh, rolling uh, rolling stocks. Mm. Uh, and so the question is, one, how can you plan ahead for those investments year after year in terms of maintaining your existing railway network? And two, how can you dispatch your maintenance operations from your field technicians in an effective way, proactively and reactively? And so that's why we actually saw the first, uh, the first, uh, let's say, maintenance planning tools, equipping technicians on the ground, again, through smartphones, to effectively display and optimize the set of tasks that were expected to, uh, to keep up that, uh, let's say, target of 99% uh, availability mm. for users. So, so those were, let's say, the two sets of transformation that we've seen in the past decade, uh, supported and backed by new tools and and digital software. When it comes to uh, when it comes to micro mobility, we are actually leveraging all that learning. Yeah. So very similarly to public transport, we are actually leveraging that learning in a sense that on the front end, we're trying to be where let's say aiming to be one of the most customer-centric uh, companies, and that is uh, really focusing on the UX and experience, and I'll get back mm -hmm. to that, and to optimizing the uh, set of operations and the way we manage infrastructure. <laughs> that, is, that, that is by design, uh, quite light comparatively, and, uh, and more decentralized, and I will get back to that as well. Mm -hmm. So on the, on the first part, on the customer-centricity, uh, beyond those initial steps of effectively providing the right information, uh, allowing to book online your uh, journey and having a clear view on your, let's say, time to time to travel. Uh, we're actually capturing all the data in terms of demand from the different users to make sure that you can find a device, an e-bike or a kick scooters, and let's say exactly where you expect that to be. So in hotspots, in cities, downtown, uh, you will expect to have a higher concentration of deployed vehicles and we're leveraging that data to, uh, to make sure that we deploy the vehicles in the right places to adequately meet the demand. That's on one. Uh, and capturing uh, feedback information, of course, to optimize uh, the experience as we, as we, uh, as we go. On the, on the backend side, what's interesting to see is that we, we're very different in structure compared to public transport, where they have to manage that, those heavy investments. Sure. Much more nimble approach with essentially decentralized, deployed vehicles in the ground. And that means that, that, let's say, moving infrastructure can be, again, uh, placed in the right places uh, to optimize the uh, returns over the initial investments on a PVQ basis. Mm. That's fascinating. I mean, they're using technology in that way. It's very complex, and uh, but very exciting as well uh, to enable the customer or the individual to be able to know how they can optimize their routes if they want to get to A to from A to B, as you say, using their smartphone and software and being able to identify, well, what are my options if I need to make a commute and what is the best journey for me? How long will it take me to get to my destination? Which is always which is always a what we all want as travelers and uh, commuters even. Um, in terms of all of these options. Obviously, with travel, depending on the type of travel you take, there's always these implications regarding carbon footprint, as you mentioned before. So can you talk about the role of sustainability in the transportation industry and what your company is doing to promote it? 
Yes, yes, of course. So sustainability is one of our prime focus. Our carbon footprint is a top KPI that we monitor on a monthly basis and report on to our investors and available on our website. Mm-hmm. How do we measure our carbon footprint? What's interesting is today we are carbon footprint neutral by offsetting the cost of our operations. Tomorrow we want to be carbon footprint negative and ultimately the most efficient option in terms of in terms of traveling from A to B from a sustainability perspective. The way we look at the carbon footprint is very simple. It's actually compounding three different uh, types of parameters. The first one is where do you procure your vehicles in essence. The second one is the impact of your local operations. And the third one is uh, ultimately the lifetime of the of the vehicles itself. So when it comes to procurement, if you order your vehicles from Asia and mm-hmm. and, and you and you eventually like ship them over from Asia to Europe versus locally insourcing your vehicles in Europe, there is definitely a different impact than you need to sustain in terms of carbon footprint. So moving into uh, more locally sources products and also spare parts helps the business to eventually drastically reduce the carbon footprint. And we're talking about 30 to 40% of that carbon footprint from a breakdown perspective. And when it comes to the local operations, what's very clear is that you can become more and more efficient to maintain and recharge those vehicles in the streets. If for the fine week, you can afford to move from, let's say, three shifts to one shift to simply recharge your vehicles, then you're concentrated in obviously all your different shifts and your staff and reducing the, let's say, the uh, energy bill or like the cost of organizing all the shifts on a per vehicle basis. And that also drastically reduces the carbon footprint. And then finally, as part of a very simple equation, if you manage to uh, deploy and extend the lifetime of those vehicles from, let's say, three to four to five to six years, obviously you're giving uh, a much wider uh, set of options to, to, uh, to dispatch the initial uh, carbon footprint. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do. Our, our first vehicles are now in the streets and have been deployed for three to four years. We're working on some refurbishment programs today in our own warehouses to extend the lifetime by two to three years, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that uh, ultimately we, we're kind of very far away from the initial consideration of the industry. That was, we buy a first generation of scooters, uh, kick scooters, and then mm-hmm. years after we, we tend to replace them. Uh, and that's not what we do. Thank you. That's, that's a great a great story, and um, being carbon neutral is is a struggle for most businesses. So to get there already and then look to actually build on that to be carbon negative is very impressive. So thank you, Fabrice. That's really interesting how you managed to address the problem of sustainability and then moving from carbon neutral and going beyond that to carbon negative. So thank you for sharing those insights. How do you prioritize uh, customer needs and feedback in product developments coming back to the customer again? Yeah, so coming back to the definition of customers, what's very interesting is that, again, we are two types of customers, city halls and, uh, and end users, let's say. That's, that's, and, and, and again, the product roadmap tends to serve both customers at the same time, uh, similarly to, uh, to the plan growth and making sure that we, uh, we optimize the satisfaction. So when it comes to city halls, what's really important is to focus on the 
inclusion of the service in the city, making sure that we have compliant parking, uncluttered streets, and people that will feel safe while taking the journey, while taking the ride, or eventually simply as pedestrians around commuters. And, and that's already feeling a very heavy uh, product roadmap uh, to account for the different needs and expectations of the cities, mm. different cities in Europe. And that means every, every, every customer is somehow different in that respect. Mm. When it comes to end user, uh, we're talking about large scale, large volume feedback loops, uh, mm. very different in structure comparatively to the CTLs. And so we're talking about how can we capture the data to provide data-driven recommendations in terms of optimizing the uh, product itself. So how do we organize this? The first one is definitely capturing the data in terms of demand, mm -hmm. optimize the dispatch of the vehicles and making sure that when you're looking for a vehicle, there is one close to where you are. Uh, that's about availability. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, we go for like qualitative feedback that is like panels uh, and overall discussions in the streets. And, and two, quantitative feedback, that is getting some surveys from time to time to really capture the feedback from the end users with regards to their experience. And when you take a trip, at the end of the trip, you can actually have the option to answer that survey and provide some insights on the quality of your experience. Mm. Now, what we see is that whilst the requests or the recommendations from the CTOs tend to differ city by city, we see very different types of requests when it comes to end users. And we really broken down into two types of two types of let's say uh, feedback. The first one is relative to your hardware, the quality of your hardware, uh, of your assets. The second one is relative to your software experience as the uh, as the app itself, right on your on your phone. Mm. So when it comes to the hardware, it's it's very easy to by product lines to systematize proactive repairs, proactive improvements to make sure that overall you see a product that is really well maintained. And, and trustable when you when you take it, right? So when you want to take an e-bike, you're uh, obviously we make sure that the brakes are really well functioning, that you have a good experience, yeah. a smooth engine, uh, that ultimately it's it's even better that it's even better than if it was to be your kind of own device. On the software side, uh, what's interesting is that most of the feedback usually revolves around, uh, again, the dispatching of the vehicles, making sure that you can find them easily and the parking experience and that's something that we discuss actively with the CTOs, that is making sure that you have a good density of parking base uh, in the city to support the end of your journey. What you, want to afford, what you want to avoid ultimately is having to look for a parking bay in a 50 meter radius yeah. in a city uh, that somehow like completely uh, goes against the experience you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to be delayed at the end of your journey, just finding a place where you can place the vehicle, definitely. Yes, exactly. Great answer, Fabrice. And it's interesting how when you get to the end of your journey, you don't want to be wasting time looking for a place to park as a customer. That obviously detracts from the experience. That being said, when you're gathering data, obviously there's a lot of um, telemetrics that you can capture from your, from your devices, uh, from the customer, from the software, but also you get customer feedback forms and depending on that overall customer experience, they'll either be exceptionally delighted or maybe they'll be disappointed, shall we say, if something's happened, for example, as coming back to that ex uh, analogy, if they get to the end and they end up having to spend 
15 to 20 minutes looking for a parking space. But then the risk could be that they may be upset, but they don't they don't provide feedback and then they just stop using your app. So to that extent, customer engagement is very important. So how do you address, have you seen that problem where you need to get that feedback if customers suddenly stop using the app for whatever reason? Yeah, so today, to be clear, we don't necessarily have that problem. We see year over year, like almost 200% growth in demand and, and trips for the same number of assets in the streets. Mm. And that means that more and more people are like attracted to those solutions, mm. including e-scooters and e-bikes uh, as alternatives to uh, to uh, to more and more more and more expensive so 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 the customer engagement itself is is by design there and the question is definitely on how do you leverage that customer engagement to really improve proactively the service and make sure that you you uh, you come back every year with a stronger offer on the on the customer side again for us the re- the question is really threefold are we deployed in the right places mm-hmm. to support the needs of citizens traveling day to day? And includes also what we call gray zones or white zones that are not necessarily perfectly covered by the public transit infrastructure and for which we need to provide a more capillary answer to travelers commuting day to day. So that's a dispatch of vehicles to Again, we really want to make sure that the vehicles are in a good state, in a good shape, uh, as as in day one. And three, uh, the parking bay is definitely a consideration. So we've moved away from like an erratic, uh, free-floating approach to a much more controlled and robust, uh, let's say, design with a virtual parking base where people have to park. But that drives uh, a lot of discussions, active discussions uh, with our, let's say, city or partners to make sure that uh, with all the endpoints that we get, end of journey uh, locations, uh, that we design a better uh, a better parking uh, infrastructure overall. That's brilliant. Thank you. And I know from your background, you have this, this skill, which is quite interesting in finding the balance between hyper growth and control growth. So if you don't mind, I'd love to touch upon that. Uh, how do you balance that need or rapid growth in the business with the with the need for maybe being controlled and sustainable as you grow the business. Yeah, so hyper growth is a, is an interesting concept. It's usually the the journey you expect with most tech companies, and 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 you have some some companies such as, for example, Uber that really reflect that uh, that concept. And uh, and when it comes to hyper growth, it's really important to make sure that. One, it reflects the expectations or condition of the market from a mm. financing uh, standpoint. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the uh, the uh, opportunity that you see in the market and the willingness to, uh, mm. to to scale the product. So it's important to to balance between the two. Let's say hyper growth and control growth, and make sure that you ride the wave uh, when it comes to that. <laughs> when it comes to so so hyper growth, ultimately. It's really down to to a few principles that you want to have in mind when the when the when the growth is uh, is flowing is 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 essentially if you're looking at let's say 10x growth over a set of years there are a few uh, let's say recipes that, that you need to keep in mind uh, when managing a company the first one is focusing on the big rocks uh, focusing on the big things that matter 
and eventually getting back to the small things later on. The second one is what we call the incrementality fallacy, and and I will get back to it. But ultimately, that means uh, sometimes you need to break things to to get uh, bigger gains for your end users, for your company, for your growth trajectory. And three, hiring as always, and how it compounds in your organization as you as you design the way forward. So so one focusing on the big rocks. I think the, the best analogy here is that you're trying to you're trying to kind of uh, you're on the highway uh, in your car and you're trying to get max speed, and and you have a few things that are preventing you from uh, from uh, keeping that uh, max speed, and so you want to focus on removing the bigger obstacles from your itinerary before focusing on the smaller obstacles uh, coming right after, and and that's to make sure that you're actually focusing on the big hard problems first, the ones that are really moving the needle before eventually adjusting, uh, adjusting things and there and there. So that's, that's one. Uh, then the, what we call the fallacy of incrementality, it simply means that sometimes uh, you're not necessarily going to get the much, the be, you're not necessarily going to get a, a lot of gains from optimizing your processes or your goal mm-hmm. as company, and therefore like those will be incremental gains. And sometimes you really need to change the statu quo and 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 transform the way you operate to get those bigger gains for your customers and and for your company overall, and uh, that means finding the inflection point or the balancing act between adjustments, optimization of processes and operations, non-breaking, and uh, and breaking those operations from time to time to really make a, a, a gap in execution or really make it like a leap uh, a leap forward in execution, I would say rather. So uh, that's that's two and uh, and three and three relates to uh, to the people you hire. Although in the context of hyper growth, you're constantly going to be falling behind, catching back on the on the recruitment side. So it's important one to have strong hiring forecast and be able to kind of plan ahead uh, those uh, those hires that you need uh, tomorrow, uh, one month, six months from now, eventually a year from now. Mm. Uh, secondly. You need to make sure that your organization stays as nimble as possible, making sure that your functions align with your priorities and your strategy. Uh, do you need more central teams? Do you need more regional teams with more power? Uh, do you need dedicated functions to focus on specific forthcoming problems? So constantly adjusting your organization to align with the problems you're trying to solve. And three is really on the on the cultural side, making sure that you hire future leaders that are tomorrow going to be relaying your your cultural compass. Mm. So not hiring people for today, but hiring them for tomorrow uh, when they would be growing a team and relaying those uh, those uh, those values uh, within the company. Thank you for that. I wasn't expecting such a comprehensive answer, Fabrice, but it's really really fascinating. And yeah, it's it's very tricky to try and balance those multiple needs and make sure you're able to meet that demand especially in those hyper growth phases and knowing I guess identifying whether it's just them an immediate trend because there's hype behind a new product or whether it's actual sustainable growth for the long term and being able to scale accordingly and so if I may add to uh, to that and back to your question on obviously on the balancing act between mm. hyper growth and control growth yeah. so Hypergrowth is again one phase of your company, and 
and uh, hopefully comes as a recurring uh, cycle. And between those phases, uh, you obviously need to be uh, entering some controlled uh, growth. And that is much more focused on your profitability versus the uh, market expansion or like the increase of uh, the growth of your uh, of your revenue. So, so during those days, uh, during those periods, usually the discussions you're having with your investors and with senior functions is the optimization of your of your uh, of your profitability, and uh, and that means having much more scrutiny around around the. Uh, their recurring uh, expenses, and so that means obviously, like going through all your uh, all your uh, uh, contracts, uh, making sure that you have a fair understanding of what you're spending and the added value, mm. and and creating much more like financial discipline in the way you uh, organize your uh, your forecast and your budget planning. Excellent, thank you. And then, what have been some of the key lessons you've learned personally when balancing growth and sustainability? And how do you manage to apply those lessons at your company? Yeah, so the shift from really like a aggressive growth to, let's say, a more uh, balancing act mm-hmm. has actually surprised a lot of the tech community and every company had to really uh, adjust and adapt within the matter. I think what we what we learned in the process is, uh, is essentially let's say down to two components. And again, it's very uh, relative to the types of customers we have. So when it comes coming into new cities uh, in Europe, in our context, and therefore getting new operating licenses, uh, now we're being much more careful on the conditions on the ground and making sure that those conditions are, are creating a favorable uh, ground for, for a micro-mobility player to, to grow and evolve. And so that means, for example, sustainable timeline, uh, moving away from like one or two years to let's say a three to four years commitment to make sure that you can also have a payback on the cost of shipping assets, but also deploying warehouse and eventually progressively growing uh, and optimizing the experience for users. You need time for that and, and you need to eventually, uh, uh, you need to be prepared with the CTOs and ultimately also making sure that we have a decent uh, ability to cover the city from A to Z. So you don't want to sell like a patchwork of smaller zones, you want actually to have like a large commuting area that is, uh, let's say, agreeable to everyone, and again, uh, the right density of parking. So, so we tend to be a bit more careful on the on where we see those, let's say, conditions for success before even entering those cities, uh, and that creates, uh, let's say, uh, a natural discipline in terms of market development that uh, we didn't necessarily have in the early days. Uh, secondly, on the on the consumer focused uh, side, so uh, focusing on the end user. We, we are looking much more so like carefully on the types of uh, marketing campaigns or partnerships we're doing. And now every day, everything is ROI based and, uh, and we lo- we're looking for a clear accountability on the, on the different campaigns that we're launching. Brilliant. Thank you, Fabrice. That was all of the uh, business related questions I had for you. And you've been a very insightful guest and very open with your insights and expertise. So I'd like to really thank you for that. Um, to wrap up this interview, are you able to share any exciting projects you're working on right now that you'd care to share with our listeners? Yeah, so so maybe in terms of news, we we've just uh, we've just expanded uh, to uh, to Madrid. So for for all the listeners that are based <laughs> in Madrid, we'll soon be operating and providing the same type of service that we see in other big capitals in Europe. So mm. that is Paris, Brussels. 
London, Stockholm, uh, Rome, etc. So, so we we're hoping that uh, obviously you enjoy the experience and that you rely more and more on those, let's say, alternative ways of transportation. Uh, there is also uh, much more coming that we can unveil uh, in the coming months. Uh, overall, if you want to reach out, uh, feel free to connect on LinkedIn, Fabrice Elgoari. And even better, if you're in London, uh, of course, uh, feel free to reach out for a coffee, uh, coffee chat or a coffee break. Thank you, Fabrice. And I'll be sure to put your connection details in the show notes. Uh, Fabrice, it's been a pleasure. This has been Business Breaks. I would like to say thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dante. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers. Business Breaks, all things business podcast with Dante Haley and John Byrne.